Blog Talk Radio. Good day to you. It is Thursday, June 20th, 2013. You're listening to The Mind Whisperer on Blog Talk Radio. My name is Michael Gordon. Welcome to the program today. You're listening in live. Uh, you can join in the show via the chat forum. I see we have some people online. And you can also uh, call in live to the program at 347-945-7891. If you're listening into the archive show or on iTunes, um, thanks for listening in to the show, and I hope you uh, enjoy the recorded version of the program. As I said, my name is Michael Gordon, and I am your host on the Mind Whisperer. And uh, we also have a Facebook page, uh, and you can find out all our information from there or from the uh, uh, program page here on Blog Talk Radio. Well, today in the program we're going to be uh, discussing the essentially the, the proto-existentialist philosopher and writer uh, from Denmark, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, uh, who was a 19th century, very influential philosopher, and um, really sort of laid the framework for what later became existentialist philosophy and thought. And we're going to draw a line from Kierkegaard all the way through to um, the very controversial um, and also influential 20th century figure, uh, Charles Bukowski, and how they both um, relate to creative process um, as it relates to the um, struggle you know, for identity and existence and purpose. And this is a topic that's dear to my heart because it's something that uh, I worked on in my master's thesis, um, looking at the role of calling and the life arc of artists and where there is a level of um, sort of an intrinsic drive or struggle to um, self-express through the creative process as a way of manifesting our existence. And maybe that this is some way sort of predetermined for us. So what I'm really going to do here is sort of read some quotes uh, from uh, Kierkegaard's um, a collection of Kierkegaard's writing um, called The Concept of Anxiety, um, which was written in 1844 or published in 1844. And... Um, he again is looking at anxiety, you know, as a psychological phenomenon, but really from an existential point of view. And when I mean existential, I mean in terms of um, trying to contemplate the meaning of our existence, the purpose of our existence, and how to, in a way, reconcile and make peace with 
um, those uncertainties or the tension of um, who we are and and um, how we function in the world. So I'll just begin by reading, um, you know, a couple of pieces from that book, and um, then we can explore that a little bit th- further. So here we go. Kierkegaard says, anxiety is a qualification of dreaming spirit, and as such, it has its place in psychology. Awake, the difference between myself and my other is posited. Sleeping, it is suspended. Dreaming, it is an intimated nothing. The actuality of the spirit constantly shows itself as a form that that tempts its possibility, but disappears as soon as it seeks to grasp for it, and it is nothing that it can only bring anxiety. More, it cannot do as long as it merely shows itself. Anxiety is altogether different from fear and similar concepts that refer to something definite, whereas anxiety is freedom's actuality as the possibility of possibility. So before I read further uh, down in a separate passage, I just want to pick that apart a little bit. There's some very um, key concepts there. And what I'm drawing out of here is also, to my mind, um, has a deeply tantric or Buddhist quality to it um, that really we're we're talking about emptiness and the relationship between uh, emptiness and potential and um and how we relate to that in in uh in terms of our daily experience and our relationship with self and the potential of ourselves so let me just go back through that initial quote um, I like a couple of things that he says in here that um anxiety is an intimated nothing. So the actuality of the spirit constantly shows itself as a form that tempts its possibility, but disappears as soon as it seeks to grasp for it. And it is a nothing that can only bring anxiety. So in other words, we know what what we might be capable of, and we reach for that, but in the reaching for it, um, the the, the actual spirit of who we are um, eludes us. I'm going to read a little bit further down, and perhaps this will elucidate a bit more about what uh, Kierkegaard is reaching for here. Anxiety may be compared with dizziness. He whose eye happens to look down the yawning abyss becomes dizzy. But what is the reason for this? It is just as much in his own eye as in the abyss. For suppose he had not looked down. Hence, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom which emerges when the spirit wants to posit the synthesis and freedom looks down into its own possibility, laying hold of finiteness to support itself. Now, that's a really densely packed there. Let's just go back through that again. And essentially, again, he's saying that anxiety is the experience of uh, perhaps limitlessness. It's what, um, in the Buddhist text, they talk about um, that we have... Uh, a nihilist we can we can fall prey to a nihilistic approach to existence that um, the universe is nothingness and this is a question that later existentialists would uh pose of course antithetical to religion, which Buddhism is also uh addressing uh you know that sort of theistic quality to the universe 
So we're not looking at the, the universe as being nothingness. That's the difference between nothingness and emptiness. But as Kierkegaard is saying here, um, it is as much in our own eye as in the abyss. For suppose we had not looked down. Hence, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom, which emerges when the spirit wants to posit the synthesis and freedom looks down into its own possibility, laying hold of finiteness to support itself. So in other words, we're looking for structure. We're looking for something to hang the structure of who we are and how to how to decorate the world with our identity. Um, and that tension between um, wrestling with that structure to existence and trying, as he says, to lay hold of finiteness to support itself. Freedom succumbs to dizziness. Further than this, psychology cannot and will not go. In that very moment, everything has changed, and freedom, when it again rises, sees that it is guilty. Between these two moments lies the leap, which no science has explained, and which no science can explain. He who becomes guilty in anxiety becomes as ambiguously guilty as it is possible to become. Now that, to me, is a fantastic phrase. He who becomes guilty in anxiety becomes as ambiguously guilty as is possible to become. So in other words, it's, just, it's again, this strain between the potential of who we are and what we might become and um, the guilt in that relationship. The, the um, urge to freedom and expression, and that um, anxiety about what we are supposed to be, and that we, sh- what we're supposed to know, and how we're supposed to express it, can turn into, as he says, um, an anxiety that's ambiguously guilty as it is possible to become. Now, I'm going to read a little further down, actually, in this this uh, website, which is called BrainPickings.org where I came across uh, these um, quotes. And I'm going to read down to some um, commentary that addresses more the aspect of creativity and anxiety from existential psychologist Rollo May, whose book, The Meaning of Anxiety, was published in 1950, so 100 years later. This is what Rollo May has to say. We can understand Kierkegaard's ideas on the relation between guilt and anxiety only by emphasizing that he is always speaking of anxiety in its relation to creativity. Because it is possible to create, creating oneself, willing to be oneself, as well as creating in all the innumerable daily activities. And these are two phases of the same process. One has anxiety. One would have no anxiety if there were no possibility whatsoever. Now, creating, actualizing one's possibilities always involves negatives as well as positive aspects. It always involves destroying the status quo, destroying old patterns within oneself, progressively destroying what one has clung to from childhood on and creating new and original forms and ways of living. If one does not do this, one is refusing to grow, refusing to avail himself of all his possibilities. One is shirking his responsibility to himself. Hence, refusal to actualize one's possibilities brings guilt towards oneself. But creating also means destroying the status quo of one's environment, breaking the old forms. It means producing something new and original in human relations as well as in cultural forms. Parentheses, e.g., the creativity of the artist. Close parentheses. 
These, thus, every experience of creativity has its potentiality of aggression or denial towards other persons in one's environment or established patterns within oneself. To put the matter figuratively, in every experience of creativity, something in the past is killed that something new in the present may be born. Hence, for Kierkegaard, guilt feeling is always a concomitant of anxiety. Both are aspects of experiencing and actualizing possibility. The more creative person he held, the more anxiety and guilt are potentially present. Now, what I find really um, relevant uh, here that Rogo May is addressing is the social aspect. And of course, this compounds the sense of guilt and that tension between self and other now, because breaking old forms is not only the internalized uh, social mores or expectations or the uh, concept of identity that we have built within ourselves or internalized from others. Now we are in uh, a potential conflict with these social structures and the values of the world around us. But of course, every person has their own truth and every person has their own relationship to experience. And so this now creates, again, a sort of a ripple effect. Uh, as we contemplate our own existence, uh, now we are, as and as we aim to um, tear down whatever preconceptions we have, um, that can also set us up to feel guilt about um, how that may um, affect our other relationships. And this goes to further things I've said in this program about um, how we can see that in personality disorders and in neurosis that we are, um, can operate from the false self in the sense where it's an act of violence towards our, our authenticity to protect our, our outward relationships. Well, uh, as we move along here now in the program, um, going to shift the focus a little bit to another 20th century existentialist, um, and this time not uh, a psychologist, but um, someone who quite embodied the struggle of um, artistic expression, at least in terms of um, his career. You know, Charles Bukowski was a, was, uh, a controversial figure, um, extremely irreverent, um, went through long bouts of uh, un, well, in particular about 10 years of um, not producing any work or doing any public readings um, until he emerged in his late 40s and a small publisher uh, stepped up to um, champion him and, and, and essentially become his sole publisher and they eventually offered him a contract to um, give him a, a, a supportive wage or living uh, so that he could quit uh, this series of, um, well, let's just call them jobs. <laughs> Not extremely fulfilling jobs for someone who is a creative professional. Uh, he worked at the post office sorting mail um, back at a time when um, you know the principles of scientific management were very much in place and they used to uh, do periodic um, tests on the job. Um, to make sure that you were up to standard. And, and uh, I've listened to interviews with Bukowski and others talking about this. Um, and uh, they really sweated you, really grilled you and made you um, function like a machine. Anyway, coming back to this, uh, you know, just looking at the biographical information about Bukowski, he was also an alcoholic. And and, um, and so he was he had a self-destructive tendencies that you could say are exemplify this internal struggle 
um, and anxiety and guilt that uh, Kierkegaard is talking about. But Bukowski was a champion of um, just living authentically, and particularly that writing was his catharsis. Writing was his freedom. And and so I think there's something beautiful in uh, Bukowski's ethos and his lived ethos as a writer um, that he considered this the, the great um, liberation um, but at the same time, it's a force unto itself, and it's not something that you can conjure, and it's not uh, something that you can cultivate, at least according to Bukowski. So here's what Bukowski had to say in a, a piece called, So You Want to Be a Writer. And it's from a volume... Um, of his published work called Sifting Through the Madness for the Word, the Line, the Way. New poems. So here we go. I'm going to read this piece now. And that will probably be the end of the program today. Um, so I'm going to read it in, with that uh, intent that you can take it in and contemplate it. So you want to be a writer. If it doesn't come bursting out of you in spite of everything, don't do it. Unless it comes unasked out of your heart and your mind and your mouth and your gut, don't do it. If you have to sit for hours staring at your computer screen or hunched over your typewriter searching for words, don't do it. If you're doing it for money or fame, don't do it. If you're doing it because you want women in your bed, don't do it. If you have to sit there and rewrite it again and again, don't do it. If it's hard work just thinking about doing it, don't do it. If you're trying to write like somebody else, forget about it. If you have to wait for it to roar out of you, then wait patiently. If it never does roar out of you, do something else. If you first have to read it to your wife or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your parents or to anybody at all, you're not ready. Don't be like so many writers. Don't be like so many thousands of people who call themselves writers. Don't be dull and boring and pretentious. Don't be consumed with self-love. The libraries of the world have yawned themselves to sleep over your kind. Don't add to that. Don't do it. Unless it comes out of your soul like a rocket. Unless being still would drive you to madness or suicide or murder. Don't do it. Unless the sun inside you is burning your gut. Don't do it. When it is truly time. And if you have been chosen, it will do it by itself. And it will keep on doing it until you die. Or it dies in you. There is no other way. And there never was. To me, that's just a sub sublime, a, you know, a testament to the creative process and the purity of the creative process. And I think it cuts through the kind of guilt that Kierkegaard is hinting at in in, in our own existential reckoning. Uh, and I look at it psychologically in terms of the develop the personality development and our psychological development that. Um, and this comes up a lot in therapy that uh, you know children are being taught <clears throat> that there are appropriate limits to their experience. Um, that if you hurt yourself, that if um, you have emotions, etc. But the the downside of normalizing those experiences is, of course, to reduce life to normalized experiences. And there's so much of life and um, the kind of freedom that and possibility that Kierkegaard is referring to um, that scares the crap out of us um, because we don't really have limits in terms of who we are. We put limits on who on how we function to function in the world, 
but the limits on who we are are only what we create for ourselves. I hope the show has been uh, on the Mind Whisperer, uh, which is every Tuesday and Thursday here on Blog Talk Radio. Sorry, I just had a call come in there. And as always, we appreciate you listening in. And please contact us through our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash The Mind Whisper. Always looking for your suggestions of program topics. You can always call in or on the forum or send an email and suggest a topic or raise a question. Um, it is an open format program. And uh, it's been my pleasure to be with you today. My name is Michael Gordon. Have a great day. And we'll see you next time on The Mind Whisper.